You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Carl Roos, who is using Ruby on Rails and Node to build a B2B news and data service. Carl, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Nick. Yeah, very happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your service? Sure. Uh, my name is Carl Roos, and I'm the Director of Technology Development at Politico Europe. Um, at Politico Europe, we uh, run a nonpartisan online news service, as well as professional services for people in the policy space, working with public affairs um, that need access to both the data sets behind the news stories and the news stories themselves. Okay. So when it comes to building this application itself, do you have a team of developers working on this? Yeah, so we're currently a team of nine, which, so I manage the team and we have six front end, no, six full stack developers, um, one UI UX designer and a dedicated mobile developer, as well as a um, product manager. Wow, that is no joke, six full stack devs. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. So, you know, I took a quick peek at your site, but you also mentioned most of it is kind of behind closed doors, like you need to be signed up to really see what's being uh, presented there. But, you know, just to set the stage for this talk, like, do you know roughly how many people are using this site, like in terms of traffic or like whatever metric that makes sense? Um, So we have just over 700 of our 1,050 plus customers using the, uh, the pro platform, which is the product itself that we build. I don't know exactly what that accounts for in users since each customer has multiple users, um, but we see um, tens of thousands of page views per day. Okay. And maybe kind of just to set the stage for, you know, listeners out there, do you want to give us like a rundown what your application actually does? Like, you know, what types of screens would people see? Is it like, you know, data tables with searching or is it just like, you know, actual news articles that like their customers of customers can see? Yeah, sure. So it's a, it's a blend between um, scraped data that we have um, refined and connected with other pieces of information and the news itself. Um, so the data sets are quite deep. Just looking at the pure stats for, for how much information we have, there are over 500,000 pieces of legislation uh, ranging from the United States Congress to the European Parliament, UK Parliament, um, press releases from government institutions. Um, there are court cases from, from various court institutions in, in the European Union. Um, so a wide range of data sets that are searchable and discoverable for users. And then with new stories that we connect these pieces of information. So if you think sort of when you're reading Bloomberg and there's a mention of a publicly traded company, you'll be able to sort of hover over that company name and see the stock ticker. And we're trying to do the same thing when there's a news article mentioning a piece of legislation that you can sort of access that in the same way. Ah, okay, that makes sense. So your service is almost kind of like a, a way to source something, right? Yeah, exactly. So I would say at the core of our technical competency is is data scraping. Okay. Now, you know, you mentioned you have a, quite a few developers working on this project. Do you know roughly how long it took you to go from, you know, just basically an idea to up and running with an MVP? And then like how long it took to go from MVP to like current day? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's quite a fun story. Um, the, the pro platform itself, the product started out as a startup that me and my co-founder, Carl Bjelland, so the two Carls, uh, he, he's the American Carl and I'm the Swedish Carl. And we started this together back in December, 2014. It took us until mid 2016 to both go full-time as we had a few customers and were able to sort of be ramen profitable. 
And then back in 2018, in June, just a, yeah, exactly three years ago, uh, we were acquired by Politico Europe. And when we were acquired, we were the two people that joined the company um, and we've built the team since then pretty linearly. So in the first year, we added two people and since then we've kept the pace up. Awesome. Yeah. Congratulations on being acquired. Yeah. Thank you very much. Also very nice to see like it was one of those, what's that term? Like, a, like an aqua hire or something like they didn't just take your stuff and, you know, bulldoze it, right? Like you can still actually work on it yourself. Yeah. It was a nice sort of hybrid between an aqua hire and an actual acquisition. So it ended up working out really well for all parties and we're still working there. So that's a good thing for everyone. Right. So when this started, you know, just you and your co-founder working on it, was it still using a similar tech stack? Like, you know, you mentioned you are using Ruby on Rails and Node, like how did it get to where it is today? So we built the initial prototype in PHP, which was sort of over Christmas 2014 there. Um, we then rebuilt the everything in Ruby, um, Ruby on Rails. So both the scraping and the uh, API and interface. And then we changed everything a last time over to scraping being exclusively done in Node.js and our API served from, uh, from Rails. We then also swapped out the front end for a uh, view front end app. So complete single page application. Okay. So it sounds like we have uh, a lot of good stuff to talk about for sure. Do you want to just maybe begin with what provoked you to go from changing the scraping component from Rails to Node? Um, the main thing was being able to interact with web pages in, in the native language of the web browser, which is JavaScript then. It, it made it super easy to prototype, sort of picking up a specific element from a website um, if, you're, if you're building a scraper um, and being able to use the same tool in the browser um, as in the application itself. So for us, that was a huge win. Um, we're big fans of using the Sherio library. And even though uh, jQuery might be sort of antiquated now uh, in the front end stack, um, it's extremely useful to be able to use the, uh, the same kind of syntax when you're, when you're collecting information, trying to extract elements from websites. Yeah. For all the flack that jQuery gets, like it's way to deal with selectors it always felt like pretty intuitive and nice. Yeah. They managed to really extend sort of the, um, the basic CSS selectors with a lot of power. Uh, that's extremely useful. Yeah, for sure. Now, you know, after you mentioned all that. I think I know the real answer of why you switched to Node instead of using Rails for the scraping. Let's be all real here. It was to get away from having to compile like Nokogiri as like a C dependency, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, Nokogiri. I don't know how much time I've spent trying to figure it out. And I've ended up in the same Stack Overflow thread too many times. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Actually, though, on that topic, you know, the idea with that is like it's a little bit tricky to get installed depending on what operating system you use. Like, do you happen to use any tools like Docker to help you deal with problems like that in the future and now? Um, so we're currently in the process of, of transitioning to Docker. So we're hosting our um, Rails application and our main Node.js scraper on Elastic Beanstalk on Amazon Web Services. And uh, we have a plan now to transition to containerization this year. Uh, so we started with the Docker non-development environment just a few weeks ago. Honestly, since we're all using the same kind of hardware and software, um, it hasn't made a big difference, but I think it'll make a big difference down the line that we can guarantee that we're running the same binaries for dependencies we're using um, and make sure that our development environments are completely on par with the production environment in that regard. Yeah, for sure. And I guess, you know, as your team grows, I guess it will be a little bit easier if folks can just pull down the repo and compose up it instead of having to, you know, follow whatever steps that you had before. Yeah, exactly. And we're using a 
sort of share the Docker Compose file between the various applications. So you can bring up the various services with a single command and it's, it's extremely useful. Nice. So when it came to that Rails app or even current day Rails app, uh, do you want to go over maybe some libraries in your gem file that you use to help build this out? Yeah, sure. Um, so we're always very, very careful about adding dependencies. Um, but taking a look at our gem file, we're using Dolly for memcached. Uh, we're using GraphQL because we're serving a GraphQL API. MySQL, um, we use Puma web server. Um, otherwise, mostly standard gems that you would expect like AWS SDK and stuff like that. Right. Did you end up rolling your own authentication or do you use something like Devise or another one? So we've rolled our own authentication. We have an external authentication service, which is uh, running on WordPress. So since the main website on politico.eu um, is a WordPress installation, we're hosting an OAuth server there. Um, so we use the OAuth2 gem to uh, interact with that one. Oh, interesting. So if one of your B2B customers like logs into your backend to do whatever they would look at there, is that accessing then a WordPress site, not the Rails site? So we essentially maintain a copy on our end as the, the WordPress site and our pro platform are managed by two different teams. Um, so we only interface with, with WordPress in regards to authentication and ingesting the editorial content. Okay. But then the Rails app itself, is, that, is there anything customer facing that people would see in an actual browser, not just like an API request? Um, no, no. The, the Rails application doesn't render anything for users, apart from like, we do render an unsubscribe page for some notifications. Oh, okay. And then you also mentioned that you are using that view uh, for the front end. What front end is that? Like, is that something where your B2B customers would be looking at some dashboard or whatever? Yeah, exactly. So when, when you sign into to, um, the Pro platform, you're greeted by the dashboard where you can see the latest news stories. You can see things on your personal calendar for legislation and court cases you're tracking, latest newsletters from Politico, um, and you're able to search the, the full extent of the database we have there to be able to find information that's interesting to your work. Okay. And just so like I'm on the same page here, the backend powering that front end, is that something other than the Rails app then, or is the Rails app? It is the Rails app, um, apart from search, uh, where we're using Algolia. Nice. Yeah, that's a, such a nice service for full-text search. It's an amazing service. We have run into some sort of limitations when it comes to document sizes. Um, but we're currently quite happy on their enterprise plan and they've been a great partner to us. Cool. So did you start using that service from day one or did you like transition from using maybe like Postgres full text search and they're like, well, we actually need something a little bit nicer or whatever. So we're using AWS cloud search, um, which is one of these services that Amazon web services has completely neglected over the past couple of years. I don't think it has received a meaningful update in like five, six years. It was really falling behind uh, other services out there. It was quite slow. So we did a big evaluation of um, full text search engines about two years ago. Um, and the final contenders in the end were Elastic and then self-hosting and probably hiring another full-time employee to be able to um, have the expertise necessary there um, or go with Algolia. And we ended up going with Algolia then. Right, that makes sense. It's always interesting when you start comparing like, well, do we need to hire another full-time employee or can I get this service? Like suddenly, I don't know what Algolia's prices are, but like, you know, if it's like a thousand a month or something that like is not even comparable to a developer salary. No, that, that build versus buy discussion is super interesting. And when you're working at scale, it becomes very, very relevant because you're also adding on sort of uh, managerial overhead by adding more people to the team. 
Yeah. And then also it's like, well, you can, you can get the service right now and integrate it, right? Like you don't need to build the whole thing out. Exactly. And don't need to host any hardware, which is virtual or physical. It's always a benefit, I think, to be able to reduce the amount of hardware you're, you're managing. Yeah, absolutely. So going back to this Rails app with the view front end, uh, do you want to maybe walk us through what your thought process was between maybe going server-side templates like the Rails way, et cetera, or, you know, going the route that you took? Like, did you do like a pros and cons? Um, to be fair, um, we were at the point there where I was making all the technical decisions myself. Um, I was still the only developer at the time, and I really enjoyed Vue. I found that I was extremely productive in it. I had worked in both React and Vue previously, and I just felt that my, um, my ability to deliver front-end became so much more efficient with, with Vue.js. Um, so it was a very, very much came out of sort of a prototyping and tr playing around and realizing that this is the thing I'm most productive with. Right, and then current day, all the developers working on that, they're all contributing to that. And yeah, it must be nice. Like I don't use Vue and React that much on the front end, but I just started playing around a little bit with uh, React Native that has the idea of components, right? And that just does that, that, that just feels like the right way to do front end stuff. Yeah, uh, the separation of concerns when you're working in a sort of component-based approach to front end development is, is so good. It's the best thing that has happened to front end development ever. Yeah. So speaking of like components, like, you know, I, I can't get into the gory details about the view stuff, but do you want to maybe give us a high level overview of like what type of components you've created? So I think we have roughly, so we separate, um, we then make a distinction between views and components. And we say that the view is sort of um, a screen that gives the composition of components. I think we have roughly 100 components. It ranges from fairly large ones, like um, the block to display a news article to something smaller like a um, flag icon, for example, or a avatar for, for a legislator. Nice. So on the topic though, of, the, of the front end, do you, want, do you want to maybe walk us through some other libraries you might be using to help build out the front end? Like stuff that might be in your package JSON? Um, so we're using um, Algolia, of course, to interface with, with their APIs. And then for GraphQL, we're using Apollo. Um, and some various links there. I think we're using batch HTTP to batch some, some GraphQL requests in the same tech. We use uh, Vuefy, which is a Balma view library. So we're leveraging the, the Balma uh, components. Uh, then we have some D3 for visualizations, uh, leaflet for maps. And I think that's pretty much it. We use Bugsnag as well to detect exceptions. Okay. So when it comes to using something like D3 for like rendering charts and graphs and stuff like that, do you want to give us some examples of what types of screens would have those components on it? So for example, we have a feature that we call monitoring, where you can set up a keyword monitor um, across a subset of our database or just the full thing. Um, so let's, let's say you set up a keyword monitor on the word emissions, then any piece of legislation mentioning emissions or any court case or news article mentioning emissions would appear in sort of monitoring inbox. And we have some visualizations there to indicate what the interest for your particular keyword has been over time. And then we, we render that in D3. Uh, we also have some things like pie charts and basic small visualizations that are spread out all over the place. <laughs> Very cool. So when it comes to like seeing that data being sent in from your backend, like do you want to maybe walk us through like the pipeline of how things get from, I guess, brand new item, like a, like a piece of data getting into the system, then being able to be seen in that backend dashboard? 
Yeah, sure. So um, we start out, well, let's take the example of a uh, piece of legislation in the European Parliament. That's probably our best example and sort of our core, the core piece of our product. So um, the European Commission would introduce the piece and pass it over to Parliament as a legislative proposal. It would then appear on the European Parliament website, which we, we scrape the list of legislation there once an hour, at which point we would insert a record in the bills table, uh, pointing towards the, the, um, the URL of the legislation, and then we'd have a separate job that actually scrapes all the full details of it. And that would also traverse and the links that it finds relevant to pick up relevant related documents. Uh, once this has been scraped, uh, we have a service, small service, service called the indexer, which is responsible for um, maintaining the search index in Algolia. So every few minutes, there's a cron job there, um, or rather a CloudWatch event triggering the, the function for scheduling and would then schedule the, the bill for indexing in the search engine. After that has been done, it's, um, it's visible in the search engine and appears in the, the front end app. Very cool. Yeah, it's a really nice pipeline of, of events. Yeah, and it, it goes rather quick as well. So if something appears on the, on the website, there's usually just an hour delay between when the cron job sort of runs. Right. I also like it how it's like fully automated, right? It's like you don't need to worry about that. Just get the data in and then eventually it's, it gets seen. Absolutely. And that's really been important for us is to make sure that we have fail safes um, to verify data because everything is automatically sort of published, like you mentioned, on the, on the website itself. So if we ingest something that's bad, we have to make sure that we don't repeat the same mistake again. So always building these continuous fail safes into the scraping itself. Right. Now, on the topic of scraping, do you maybe want to get into, you know, some issues you've had and like some edge cases that you had to discover over time? So scraping the way we do it is extremely fragile and intentionally so. We'd rather have a scraper break than save bad information. So some of the, the issues we run into continuously, we're scraping information from, I believe, over 400 different websites, is that if you take 400 random websites, <laughs> at least one of them will inevitably be updated with a new structure, let's say at least once a month. So they continue to break, um, which is part of what we do. So I would say that we spend about 10% of our sprints on uh, simply updating existing scrapers and make sure they work with the changes on the websites. Oh, wow. So, I mean, probably safe to say you have a lot of automated tests to check those, right? Yes, every single scraper. I believe we have almost 100% test coverage. Um, and the way we build test coverage for scraping is with the current state of the scrapers. So um, all the tests are completely sort of uh, flight mode safe uh, with copies of the websites and their HTML bundled in the test suite itself. Hmm. I think that's pretty interesting, right? Because it's like, you know, having live tests is always nice, but they take forever and making third party API calls. But having like a mock test like this one where you're just testing like an older version of the site, that doesn't seem like it would help very much because, you know, that could be different than the current state of the site. Do you do anything like do you maybe every day or something like that? Go to one of these sites, crawl it, make some test data from that, and then your tests run against that? So what we do is we build a lot of fail safes into the scrapers themselves. So we'll make sure that they fail with as meaningful um, information as possible about why they failed, and then it will appear in bug snag. So we're continuously sort of monitoring the, the inbox in, in bug snag to make sure that uh, if scrapers are failing, we figure out why, and then we can replicate the, the new version of the website in the tests and update the test suites accordingly and update the application logic if needed. 
right? And you say, you know, you spend probably like just 10% of your time doing that. It's interesting. It's like almost like a, you know, given the number of employees that you have, it's like almost like one full-time position. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it sounds quite boring. Um, it, it's very much the, the gruntiest sort of technical task we have in the team. Uh, but it's also very necessary work for, for the for the products. Right. So I'm not like super well versed in the Node ecosystem, but do you want to maybe go over some libraries that you use for the crawling side of things? Like like the Nokugiri equivalent for Node or whatever? Absolutely. So we use um, Cheerio, which is the, the jQuery uh, on Node.js equivalent. Um, we use Axios for all HTTP requests. We were using the, the uh, standard libraries in Node previously, and we swapped that out for Axios quite recently, uh, just because we, we were replicating logic for following redirects and stuff ourselves when we could just leverage the library. Then we're dealing with a lot of different content types. So we scrape PDFs, we scrape um, Excel spreadsheets, uh, Word documents, and for all of these, we've used various um, packages in our package.json. I think there's something called Word Extractor for, for uh, docx files, uh, XLSX for Excel documents, um, and so forth. Right. So did you find yourself having to develop any custom functionality for like specific types, or were you able to find libraries for basically everything? Um, we were able to find libraries for most everything. Um, the most custom one we have is probably for PDFs, where we are using the PDF to text binary. So we essentially perform a shell command that we call from node and get the results back into node and then perform the text parsing on top of the results. Okay. And for the scraper component, you know, this node service, do you just run like one copy of it or is there multiple copies of that? So we have, we run it on Elastic Beanstalk. Um, we scale between 10 and 16 EC2 instances. Um, I believe they are, they're not the biggest, they're quite small instances um, since we only run a single thread. Um, or a single, yeah, single process. Right. I think that's an interesting approach too. Like I've been just getting into working with Kubernetes and they sort of recommend that idea of like, instead of running, because, you know, outside the container world or whatever, you typically like with Puma, with Ruby on Rails, right? Like you'd run multiple workers, right? Maybe like eight of them or something and you can mm -hmm. just scale vertically. But yeah, it seems like it is sort of a best practice to go one process, one thread and kind of just like horizontally scale your machines, right? It's been so much easier, but we were playing around with, we're running uh, multiple processes for, uh, for scraping on, on the instances. And it was just so much more difficult to, to deal with a crash, for example. So if something crashed and then let's say we ran out of memory, we would just have these issues where it would impact the other jobs. And instead of ending up with one stale job, we would have five stale jobs. And it was a lot more difficult to debug. Right. So with all that like communication between doing the scraping and the job processing and writing data here and there, I know with Rails, right, if you're using something like Sidekick to do your processing, all of that state about the job queue itself is in Redis, right? And I mean, you're going to be writing your data to Postgres or whatever, but, you know, are you happen are you also using Redis with the node scraper component or no? So we're using uh, SQS, the simple queue service on AWS. And in our local development environments, we're using um, local stack in the sort of shared Docker Compose file to run SQS locally. Ah, nice. So do you want to maybe give us a TLDR on what OpenStack is and like what specific services you might be mocking out? So uh, LocalStack is a, um, they call it themselves a fully functional local AWS cloud stack. And we're using it to, to emulate SQS, so simple queue service, 
We're also using it for SCS, um, simple email service. And then the question is which other services we're using it for. I, I believe CloudWatch as well for reporting metrics. Um, not mm -hmm. sure if there's anything else. Otherwise, we're just running a local uh, MySQL and Memcache server to get an equivalent of uh, the database and the Memcache cluster that we also run on AWS. Okay. So when it comes to uh, scraping this content, are you also scraping like downloadable files, like images and stuff like that, and like putting them in S3 or no? Uh, yes. So we have images for, for people, for example. We put that in an S3 bucket and we resize them using a background job to the various sizes that we need on the application. And then we serve it over CloudFront. Nice. When you say resize, you mean like dimensions of the image, right? Like thumbnails? And yeah, that? exactly. Okay. And by the way, speaking of like, that just reminds me of the Rails app. Uh, maybe before we move on to other stuff, like, do you want to give us like a like a rundown of the scope of this application? Like if you were to run, I don't know, like a Rails stats or something like that, like how big is that backend? You don't need to give like exact numbers. It's a good question. I can I can run it right now. So I think we have the scraper is by far the biggest application in the stack. Um, see, Rails stat is running here. So the scraper, do you know like roughly what that would be? Like I don't know if there's like a stats equivalent with the node setup. Yeah, the scraper is roughly fifty thousand lines of code. So the okay. uh, Rails application here is uh, eighteen thousand five hundred lines of code. Yeah, it's always interesting to me at how efficient like the code to productivity ratio is with Rails. Mm. And the majority of that is specs. So the actual application code is, is just under half. Yeah. So speaking of specs, then you're using uh, RSpec then, right? Yes, correct. What was the test coverage on that one? I mean, you mentioned like 100% roughly on the scraper, but like what about, you know, like, you know, like what are some API endpoints that are like well-tested? Um, so we're at overall 90% coverage. Well, that's really high. Yes, and I believe it's 100% coverage on the GraphQL API, which uh, that test coverage has served us really well. It's time well invested. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of like these different services though, right? Like you have the Rails one, you have the Node one, you have the front end as well. Do you have all of these uh, split up into different uh, Git repos or is it all just in like a mono repo? Yeah, so we have separate repositories. Um, we were, we're running a mul multiple different serverless services as well. And we have combined those into a monorepo quite recently uh, because what we found was that we had more things in common between the different services than things were, that were different. Okay. Yeah, that's always an interesting one when it comes to those serverless functions because like, well, maybe you can walk us through like, what did it feel like for you initially going from something like a more standard Rails app or even, you know, like a long running server node app, whatever, to like this serverless model? I think the main thing I missed was being able to tail logs in real time. But otherwise, the tooling around serverless has really become fantastic. We're using the serverless framework. And um, from from idea to deploying something, that time has really, really been shortened down to close to nothing. So we can you know spin up a new function in no time. Nice. What does the development experience look like using serverless? Because I only played around briefly with serverless stuff, and I ended up using uh, that SAM tool, the one made by AWS. Mm. And I found the dev experience to be not the best because it was like, I just wasn't used to like having to build and wait like seven seconds to get feedback of the function. Like, what is it like with serverless? So serverless offline is a um, plugin available for a serverless framework, which is extremely useful. It doesn't cover all the use cases. So if you have, for example, an SQS consuming function, so a, a function that would then consume a, a queue, 
Um, you have to use, say, a separate plugin and things don't work exactly as they would do in the production environment. So yeah, there are limitations in, in the developer experience for sure. Um, but compared to, I think the sort of benefits of the simplified deployment process can kind of outweigh that. But absolutely, the development experience is not as good. Right. So do you want to give us maybe a rundown of a, of a couple of functions that you've created? So in the, um, we have the service for indexing content in the search engine. We have a service for um, the monitoring. So the keyword monitoring I mentioned previously, we have a service for notifications. So we send push notifications to our mobile app as well as email notifications. We have a service for um, tagging content. So some super basic NLP and uh, dictionary matching to, to tag piece of information. Then we have translation service, and then we have a service for ingesting tweets from Twitter, and then a basic worker service, which is essentially for everything else. It can be maintenance functions and stuff like that. Right. Yeah, it's a really cool breakdown. It's interesting to see how like certain things are definitely very well suited to just like an isolated function doing its thing, like the tagging stuff. Like, does that really need to happen? Like at the exact point in time of inserting it? Maybe, maybe not, right? Like 10 seconds later is okay. Is that what you found as well? Absolutely. And more or less every one of these are queue bound applications. Everything is asynchronous and it's, it makes things easier to deal with. Right. So, you know, you mentioned things like notifications and sending emails and texts and stuff like that. Do you happen to use uh, the SNS service as well or no? So we use SNS for some communication between services. Um, so like when you're using um, Amazon simple email service, you'll get the events back. For example, if you have click tracking, open tracking, uh, or delivery tracking, you're going to get those events shipped to you uh, in an SNS topic. So we consume that SNS topic then in a function within the notification service. But we don't use it for anything that's customer facing. Right. Yeah. When I was playing around with serverless, the SNS component was the one that was very basically impossible to mock out in local development because it's like, you know, unless you have an equivalent running locally. I don't know if local stack does it, right? It's just like that tends to be an integral part of dealing with a Lambda as like a trigger. Absolutely. And it's also one of these services that has very bad sort of um, visibility. It's hard to see if, if you haven't received something from SNS, debugging that can be a mess. Yeah, definitely. And by the way, you know, just jumping around a little bit here, when it came to the Rails app, uh, are you happen to be using Webpacker? Um, no, we're not. Okay. No, actually, yeah, that makes sense, right? Because it's like you just have the dedicated Rails API and then in like view on the front end, right? Exactly. So I believe we're running Rails in this API mode, if that's what it's called. Um, so we don't have a view layer at all. Right. That was a dumb question on my part, but I'm going to leave it in just to let people know. I ask dumb questions once in a while. It's a good question <laughs> if someone scrubbed through the podcast. So. Yeah. And, and by the way, just speaking of Rails now, are you running the latest stable of Rails? Like any intentions to upgrade to seven if and when it comes out? Um, we try to stay on top of upgrades. We're on 6.1 something. Um, so I, I believe we're on the latest one. We, uh, we use Dependabot for all the repositories to keep dependencies up to date. And we almost always go through with upgrades. Nice. So. I don't know, well, maybe you'll know the answer to this one for sure, but like when it comes to Dependabot, can you actually configure it to auto merge those PRs in like without you having to do anything? You can do that. We, we don't. Um, we have them set at 
five or six in the morning, so before the workday, and then I'll usually just review them in the morning or a member of the team will, and we'll go ahead and merge them manually. Right. Yeah. Cause that's one of those funny things, right? It's like most of the time it's probably going to be fine, but it just feels weird to have it like fully, fully automated. Yeah. That one day when you, um, a dependency is upgraded and it actually impacts that 10% that we're missing test coverage from that can be troublesome. Right. I'd be curious to see though, in the topic of like updating dependencies, do you have like a specific schedule where you kind of just like, you know, maybe run through your gem file and be like, okay, you know, today's the day I'm going to update all the dependencies to the latest versions or something like that. I wish this was more planned, but I just do that occasionally. Um, same thing for the node projects. Well, I'll run an NPM audit or NPM outdated and just go through a bunch of packages. Yeah, it's always an interesting thing, right? Because, yeah, I've got some projects now where I need to monitor a whole bunch of different dependencies and it feels like, yeah, I don't know. It, it's a tricky problem to solve because it's like you want to be running the latest stuff, but at the same time, it's hard to get away from something that works unless you really need a, like a new feature. Right. But if you ignore it for too long, then it's like, well, you know, now suddenly you need to update like a two year old package. Yeah, I think staying on top of, of dependencies and keeping things up to date will save you time in the long run because you'll have incremental small changes than the massive refactoring required. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe now we can talk a little bit more uh, about the rest of your tech stack. So, you know, besides Rails and Node, do you happen to use any other languages for any other features? So we do use small sprinkles of Python um, in the AWS Glue service. So AWS Glue is like an ETL, so Extract, Transform, Load service, where you can use um, Spark to write scripts. And we do shift some data between um, our MySQL database over to S3 to, to run queries on it in Athena. Um, so a bit of Python in there, but not very much. It's a few hundred lines of code. Okay. And for that MySQL database, then, do you have both the Rails and Node applications writing to the same database? Yes, and the serverless applications too. Um, all applications speak with the same database. Okay, and then I know you have like, you know, different components, right? There's the web scraper and the Rails API, but do you have, like, are each of those their own monolithic application? Uh, yes, that's correct. Okay, and then, you know, in addition to MySQL, you know, you mentioned you do have a couple of other things running, like you have memcached. Is there any other services that, that, that are a part of your stack that aren't like necessarily related to AWS? Um, we do use um, Google Translate on, um, on Google Cloud, just leveraging that API for some translations. Since we're scraping a lot of information in, in the European Union, uh, you have this interesting thing where, where people speak in their native language in the European Parliament. So if we want to make that available to our English speaking customers, we have to translate it. And for that, we rely on Google, Google Cloud Translate. Right. Now, I don't know if AWS has that feature, but did you look into like their translator and like why you chose Google over that one if it exists? They do. Um, they launched it after we had started using Google Cloud Translate. And we've done some comparisons and they're, they're quite similar, but it feels like Google is maybe one step ahead of them. There's also this really cool uh, German startup called DeepL. Um, that seem to be making some major strides when it comes to um, to translations, and we're, we're evaluating them as well. It's surprising that you get similar results because Amazon's like a massive company with you know tons of pages, tons of languages. But like Google, I guess in my opinion, right, it, it feels like it's in a whole other galaxy of like you know basically scraping the entire web. They probably have a way bigger sample size. Absolutely, and fun anecdote: uh, Amazon launched here in Sweden uh, just this autumn, um, so we now finally have access to to the great assortment of products available from Amazon here. And when they <laughs> launched, 
product titles were so off because they've just done automatic translations from, from English to Swedish and it looked bizarre. Maybe their tech isn't as good as, as you would think. Yeah. But speaking of AWS tech, like when it comes to things like Memcached and, and MySQL, are you using the full-blown managed services for all of those, like RDS and Elasticache? Yeah, so we're using RDS uh, Aurora and we're using Elasticache for Memcached. Okay. So, you know, you, you mentioned you are using uh, Elastic Beanstalk for running most of this here. For listeners out there, like, do you want to just give us a rundown of what that service allows you to do and, and like how it differs from you just setting up like an EC2 instance on your own and managing it? So Elastic Beanstalk comes in two different tiers. You have a web server tier and you have a worker tier. And a web service tier will have a load balancer in front of it automatically, uh, whereas the worker tier will be just for background processing. So the API runs on the web server tier and the scraper runs on the worker tier because it's not internet facing. And essentially what Elastic Beanstalk allows you to do is to select a stack, which for the API is a Ruby stack and for the scraper is a Node.js stack. And then you can simply upload your application code and let's let Amazon take care of everything else. So it's, it's very similar to, to other services that are out there where you can just upload your application code and don't have to worry so much about the infrastructure. You can just scale your instances or set up a scaling policy that fits your, your use case. Right. So you can just say like, okay, I want, you know, 16 copies of the worker running and that's really all you need to think about, right? Exactly. Um, until you get into some deeper requirements to go outside of the bounds of what's actually supported by Elastic Beanstalk. Uh, which I feel like we're currently doing, and that's we're moving to something more sophisticated. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because it sounds like you know if you have that specific type of app, quite nice. But as soon as you break out of that, quite not nice. <laughs> yeah, and the main thing for us right now has been scaling on the queue size. So we want to scale our um, scraper workers on the size of the queue, and it's been a real mess to do it with a lot of um, JAML cloud formation hacking. <laughs> right. Before we get into that, by the way, like just speaking of, you know, processing jobs and having multiple workers running, do you want to maybe go into like some strategies that you've used to help cut down on doing duplicated work or like, you know, being able to recover from a worker getting restart without having to, you know, lose all the progress or whatever? So when we um, scrape information and perform a scraping job, we will insert a row into the, into the database. This sounds counterintuitive to using a separate queue, but it's just to provide a full level of insight uh, or visibility into the job itself. And when the job is then completed, we will then mark that row with a timestamp of when it's completed. So this allows us to, to easily detect when something has gone completely stale or if something has failed, um, which we can generate reports from and be able to take action. Okay, that makes sense. And then like when it comes to executing the jobs themselves, do you also have like code in place to sort of help prevent even firing duplicated work, check the timestamp or whatever. And if it's like within a range, then just do nothing basically. Um, not really. We'd rather just execute things multiple times and guarantee at least a single execution rather than end up in a situation where we accidentally don't execute something. So for us, a duplicate execution isn't usually that expensive because we're running enough machines that we can take that overhead. So that's been our general approach. So by the way, also on the topic of jobs, do you know like roughly how many you process per day? I think we process on the scraper something like 500,000 jobs per day. Well, that is a lot. Is that just continuously like whatever? It's not like, you know, all of them within a 10 second period of time. It's kind of just like staggered across 24 hours. 
super continuously. So we have a, a big file that defines scheduling and it defines scheduling then in various intervals. So some jobs will run uh, every 10 minutes or every hour or once a week or once a month. And then we, um, we built a small script that paces these out evenly um, and, and defines the cron statements. Okay, nice. Now, switching back to the infrastructure side of things, when it came to the AWS setup, like, did you look at other providers first and compare that and you chose AWS or did you just have prior experience? Like, how did that pan out? So when we started out with the startup, um, which was called Statil, we were granted a nice chunk of AWS credits. And uh, I guess that worked out in their favor, favor because we've, we've been locked in ever since. <laughs> so we never really evaluated other cloud services. We, we built right into their ecosystem, as I mentioned, with leveraging things like SQS. It is very interesting how that works. Like, yeah, just getting, you know, a reasonable amount of free credits is enough to like get you in the door. And then it's like, they've got the tentacles in and there's no escaping. Absolutely. And I, I, I did a quick calculation not too long ago and we, we've spent on AWS more than like a hundred times than the credits we received. So I guess the program sometimes works out in their favor. Yeah, probably most of the time. Otherwise, uh, they wouldn't offer the free credits. I would think so at scale. They're smart enough to figure that out. Yeah. So by the way, I've actually never even used Elastic Beanstalk firsthand. Like I've played around with it. I sort of know of it. But when it comes to picking things like, oh yeah, I want to run like eight workers or, you know, five copies of the web API. Do you get to pick just the memory and CPU constraints of what you want? Like, how does it know that you want five of them? Like, is it going to spin up like literally five instances for you on your behalf that you don't need to manage? Or does it give you just like the CPU and memory, like compute power? So you specify a specific instance type and for the scraper, we're running T3 mediums. Um, and for the API, we're running T3 smalls, I think. And um, once you have that defined, you have two variables, the min size and max size, which defines the minimum number of instances that the application is supposed to run and the maximum number. And then you also have scaling triggers, which by default, I believe go on CPU. CPU is not always the best scaling trigger, especially in our use case where we just want to scale up the number of instances on the queue processing, but then there are ways to sort of get around that. The, the scaling triggers themselves essentially end up being CloudWatch alarms, which means that it triggers uh, a scaling operation when the, the CloudWatch alarm is in an alarm state. Uh, and that goes for both up and down. So then, I mean, this is getting a little deep in the woods, but it's interesting then. Like, can you actually just set up your own alarms then where you can execute custom code to, I guess, do a database query, look at the queue count or whatever, and then like something gets triggered? I think that's when you reach a point where you've, you've grown out of Elastic Beanstalk and need something more sophisticated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So speaking of that, though, like, have you given thought to where are you going to go next to host your stuff or what service you might use? Um, probably ECS. That would make the most sense for us now that we're um, trying to containerize our applications as well. Right. Now, did you, I know this is maybe like too deep in the future to think about things, but did you consider using Fargate on top of ECS or like the manual version of ECS? Yeah. So they also launched something called Proton, which is like a managed um, deployment CI CD service um, and management service for, for, East, for Fargate and serverless. And that could be something to review. Um, my understanding is that Fargate gets get, quite a bit more expensive than just using ECS directly. Um, but yeah, definitely learn more about that. Yeah, I don't have any concrete numbers, but I mean, I, I think in a couple of things that I've estimated for some clients, it was like in between 10 and 30% more to use Fargate. Yeah, that's quite a bit. Yeah, for sure. It definitely adds up. 
but it's also kind of nice not having to worry about you know individual servers but yeah it's again just like the price you have to pay for convenience i guess mm. agreed so earlier you mentioned you are using some interesting uh, cloud formation stuff do you want to maybe go over like what you're using that for so in the serverless applications uh, each application has some resources that are defined in cloud formation so for example we define uh, cloud jobs or cron jobs um, using CloudWatch events, and they, they're defined in the serverless JAML file, which is CloudFormation as... Uh... Okay. So when it comes to like managing the other components of your AWS setup, like setting up RDS or VPCs and all that fun stuff, do you have all of that in CloudFormation templates that you've set up, or do you just do that manually through the uh, web console? So all of that is in a separate repository using Terraform. Oh, nice. Yeah. It's cool that you mentioned that because I was going to ask you, like, did you look into using Terraform and like compare the two? But yeah, so now that I know that, what did you find like between wanting to use Terraform versus CloudFormation? I'm a huge fan of Terraform and I don't like CloudFormation. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> too verbose and um, I find Terraform to be so much more readable. Yeah, I'm in the same boat as you. Because I remember the first time I did a CloudFormation template using JSON instead of YAML, it was something like like 940 lines long. And like the YAML made it down to like 600 lines long, but then it's like I converted it to Terraform and it was like 300 lines long. And it just felt like it would, like who cares about the lines, right? It just felt like it was just more easy to reason about. Absolutely. And and if you need a third party or someone else to to review the code, it's going to be a lot easier for them to review that those 300 lines than the 900. So just there is a huge benefit. Yeah, it's also kind of funny. Like, you know, we all talk about how lines of code isn't really a good metric to base things on. To some extent, it's totally true, right? Like, like one really long line of code is uh, going to be really silly versus like 10 like really well thought out lines. But yeah, when it comes to like long-term maintenance and stuff like that, I do find in general, like just like broad broadly, less code is better as long as it's not like trying to be cleverly less code. Yes. Um, I would happily swap out weird ternary statements for a couple of lines of if analysis, uh, if it improves readability and uh, understanding the code. Yeah, absolutely. So on the topic of the Terraform stuff and just cloud formation and you know keeping your infrastructure as code, what does the process look like for you to keep all of that inversion control, but also be able to independently deploy things based on like maybe CI triggers? So we deploy everything to um, on the Terraform side from our local development environments. And we try to be very, very careful about changing too much. Usually there will be just a single person responsible for deploying it, and that will be me to avoid any race conditions and, and, and deploying things at the same time. But we use an S3 backend for the Terraform file or the Terraform backend uh, lock, I believe it's called. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely a good idea with multiple devs out there. Yeah, I have no idea how to run Terraform successfully with people accessing it simultaneously. So that might be a future challenge if we continue scaling the team as much as we're doing. <laughs> Right. So even if you go like the ECS Fargate or Proton route in the future and stuff like that, probably still going to be using Terraform to set all that stuff up or no? Absolutely. I think that's um, the core pieces of the infrastructure, the way I see it, should be defined in our centralized Terraform uh, repository. And then the individual applications can have specific resources that they rely on in their own repos. Right. Now, I'm not trying to like pick apart your decisions on this, right? But if you do move in the future to, to that type of setup or something like that, have you thought about going like the full CI CD route where it's like you can just push your, you know, Rails API backend and like somehow that gets all deployed like automatically just from a Git push? So from the um, 
for the Rails application, the service applications, and the scraper, that's all deployed uh, on push, um, or rather to um, yeah, push to develop um, deploys to staging, and push to main will deploy to production. Right, but I mean, like in the future, like if you move to the different, like the new setup. Um, yeah, we'd want to to keep full CI/CD and continuous integration. We try to deploy as frequently as we can to production and and make sure that we have a short list of things that are pending deployments. As that list grows, it just makes it more difficult to deploy. Right. Yeah, it's always like a battle I've had in my mind. Like when it comes to the infrastructure that might be related to the code, like do you keep that in the same repo or put it in a separate repo? Because maybe technically you might introduce something that requires you to make like a new subdomain, like a, a new DNS entry that's like technically infrastructure. Like do you, have you given any, any thought about that topic? Um, well, in regards to DNS and sort of having that as an external dependency, we manage that manually. Um, so it sits in Cloudflare, and because that's the, D the DNS and the domain um, routing is shared between both us and the separate team managing the the political EU website. Um, so it's been easier for us to just do that manually uh, and try to keep that out of the infrastructure definitions. Okay, and you know, you mentioned for now you are usually the one doing all the infrastructure deployment stuff, you know, on your DevBox or whatever with Terraform. When it comes though to permissions that like other developers might have, can everyone on the team technically do all of that stuff? They just choose not to do it? And technically they can do most of it, everything except create new IAM roles. So they're delimited in, in creating users with the full permissions, but otherwise everyone can do everything. Everyone can deploy to production. Um, everyone can push to all repos. Nice. And then do you have some form of like code reviews for every type of modification? Yeah. So we use feature branches with pull requests that go to the develop branch. And then we always require pull request reviews for anything to be merged. We're also using uh, code climate to, um, to detect if there's any, anything that's severely flawed in the, in the code style, as well as we have um, some linting and of course the test runs as well in the CICD. Okay. On the linting side of things, do you use something like RuboCop for Ruby and then I guess like ESLint or whatever for the JS stuff? Those are two we use. That's correct. Right. For the ESLint setup, did you roll your own configuration or do you use one of the like popular ones? Um, we've rolled our own, but it's extending, um, it's extending the ESLint recommended. But I think we have like an additional sort of 40 rules that we've defined that, that fits what we want to do. Right. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Like when you look at the ES lint configuration stuff, like the first time I looked at that, I'm like, oh yeah, I'll just roll my own from scratch because like, why would I want to pull in a dependency? But then I realized like that is its own like full-time job, like to replicate something like the Airbnb setup with like so many, so many, so many rules. Yeah, it's massive. Um, and we find that there's always like a rule missing and there's been a push from the team to move to Prettier um, instead to have a consistent code style that's completely unopinionated. Right. Yeah, there's definitely value in that, right? Just having a tool do all the formatting for you so you don't need to think about it. Absolutely, and it reduces the amount of discussions you can have as well um, if you just rely on the defaults and the third-party tool. Right. So maybe now, do you want to talk us through like the full process from going from a feature that a developer is making to making its way up into production? I mean, you briefly covered like, yeah, we use a feature branch and there's linting and CI and stuff like that. But uh, do you also use like tools in development for like get pre-commit hooks on some of that linting stuff too, or no? Yeah, so we use um, Husky um, in all the repositories with some pre-commit hooks for running the linting. So in the API or the Rails project, um, we would run a pre-commit hook um, that performs linting 
We also use um, commit lint to actually lint the commit messages themselves, um, which is also part of the pre-commit hooks. That's pretty cool. So I'm not familiar with that tool. Does that just give you some configuration file where you can just put your hooks in there and then they get run? Yeah, exactly. So it's a Node.js tool and um, it installs itself on npm install. And then you have um, just shell files that sits in a .husky directory in the repo. It's very convenient. Yeah, because it always it is an interesting problem, right? Because normally those rules would just be sitting in your get folder, but that get folder is going to be ignored from actually being pushed up. So yeah, it's like a third-party tool is absolutely necessary. Exactly. And what Husky does is that it installs itself. So that makes it easy to to get set up for the other developers. And even if we have non-J no Node.js projects, we will require um, Node.js in them just to use Husky. Right, that makes sense. I'm gonna have to look into that one. I'll make sure to leave a, a link to that one in the show notes as well, definitely. So going back to that deployment process, you know, you mentioned how it works basically on the client side, right? Like the developer does all the developing, they make a feature branch, it get merged through like specific branches. Uh, yeah, do you just like then go from the dev branch to a staging branch to the production branch? And then eventually like, yeah, makes its way into Elastic Beanstalk and then is pushed up and rolled out? Yep, so we use um, Codechip for our CICD. And um, they have a nice connector to Elastic Beanstalk, which means we we have can avoid writing any code ourselves. There, we can just hook it up with the uh, access key and secrets. Um, so it's an extremely simple CI/CD setup. Nice. Now, if you had to guess here, do you know roughly how long it takes to go from a developer pushing code to it making its way into production? So our longest builds are on the scraper, and that's because of the the massive test suite with the HTTP mocking. So. I believe that test suite takes like 30 minutes to run on the code chip hardware. So I would say you can get something into production within two hours uh, on that one. And you can get something into production on our serverless environments in maybe 25 minutes. Nice. And if you had to guess like average number of deploys per week or day or something? I would say we deploy to staging maybe 20 times a day and to production maybe once or twice a day on average. It's interesting, right? It's like if you want to make something less scary, you just do it more often, right? So like doing it that amount of times probably makes it pretty low pressure for you to do to do a deployment, right? Yeah, because each deployment will be such a small incremental improvement over the last or incremental change. So the risk with each deployment is a lot lower than having this massive, you know, end of quarter deployment or something like that. Yeah, for sure. By the way, speaking of deployments and um, you know, things that could be difficult to maybe figure out, especially if you're dealing with more than one web server at a time. Like, how do you deal with database migrations, like specifically on the Rails side of things? So we do all the database migrations in Rails. And um, yeah, this is sort of an unsolved problem. Um, Elastic Beanstalk allows you to run scripts pre-deployment. And then the way we've set it up is that we'll have a single instance that's deployed but doesn't get added to the load balancer, which will then run the database migrations in the background and wait for that complete until it actually deploys the rest of the fleet. However, what happens with long running migrations, which is often the case with our fairly large database, um, is that that will time out. <laughs> and we sometimes have to resort to running SQL statements manually that matches the active record migrations. Aha. Uh -huh. Yeah. And then in addition to that too, right? Like if that one migration instance comes up and it runs successfully, like let's say it doesn't time out then you have a couple of different active web servers running that are now going to be potentially reading data that is different than you know when the application was started. So do you do, you do like lockstep migrations to where you're very safe on you know 
doing column modifications and stuff? So what we'll usually do is that we'll split it up into multiple deployments. So let's say we're adding a new column. We will have one deployment first to actually add the column, and then we'll have a um, second deployment to start using that column in application code, and then potentially a third deployment with a new migration to populate it if we need to populate it with some existing data. So we'll do it in a staggered manner. Yeah, that totally makes sense and definitely falls in line with your philosophy of just keeping changes small, right? It's like now you have this incremental step every along of the way or every step of the way. Yeah, it makes everything so much easier, especially with that sort of scale we have in terms of data and risk of migrations just failing. Yeah, so speaking of that, like how much data do you actually store in your database? Um, so I think our MySQL Aurora cluster is like 400 or 500 gigabytes. Well, that's a lot of data. It's it's not maybe it's not that much data if you compare it to like what actual big data is, but it's a lot to to handle in MySQL, um, or it's at least the kind of scale where you can get into issues with non-optimized tables and queries. Right. So roughly, how many tables do you think you have? Like, I, I know you're not going to probably know offhand, but like dozens or hundreds. It's between 150 and 200. Okay. Yeah, but it is super interesting. You know, once you get to that scale of like a couple hundred gigs, like almost a half a terabyte of data, it's it's really hard to like visualize what that really means. Like, I mean, you say it's not that much compared to like quote unquote big data, but that's like, that is a lot. Could be, especially like maybe, maybe I'm just not experienced enough dealing with bigger apps, but even like some apps where it's like, you've got millions of rows and like, you know, dozens of tables, like you may just be approaching like, I don't know, a couple of gigs at most. Yeah, for sure. And, and the interesting things you end up with is, you can be very, very, um, you don't have to be very careful when you're constructing SQL statements, when you have a smaller data set. Like if you have sub 1 million rows, most things will be returned in tens or hundreds of milliseconds. But once you get into that sort of scale where you exceed a few gigabytes per table and a few millions of rows, you know, those full table scans can really, really hurt you. Yeah, for sure. Now, do you use any tools to help you kind of you know, find out like, oh, we know we're missing index hits on like this type of query. So we use some um, RDS performance insights on both the, so we run two database instances, one, uh, one uh, master and one reader and um, with performance insights on both. So we can sort of see the side performance wise for insert and update queries and then decide for select queries on those separate instances. Okay. Now, do you have any like alarm set up of those to where it's like, well, uh oh, like this endpoint's reporting back in like, you know, 4,500 milliseconds or whatever? And not automated, but it's usually the first place I go if something happens because the answer will usually be there. Right. Do you have any like war stories from the past where like a situation that you got yourself into because of like a missing index or some other thing? Um, so we had one thing happen. We haven't had a lot of in incidents and we've been able to maintain very, very close to 100% uptime. Um, over these past couple of years. But a few weeks ago, I got a call at three in the morning on a Saturday. <laughs> um, so we have we have an external provider that, that monitors our stack 24 seven. And they gave me a call there at three in the morning uh, because they were seeing extremely high CPU utilization on the database. So the first thing I did then was get out of bed and uh, take a look at performance insights. And there was some sort of background job that was repeating for strange reason. Uh, causing a uh, long-running SQL query that exceeded the, the timeout for the job itself. So when we started, it was just adding on to the, the current concurrently executing statements. And in the end, you ended up with 100% continuous CPU utilization in the database. So those things can happen. And uh, 
did happen then and it did ruin my night to sleep. Yeah, but it's good to see that it doesn't happen frequently. Yes, certainly. And we, we're in the beneficial situation where all our customers are using, or more or less all our customers are using the application during the same working hours as we do. Um, so if something goes wrong, for whatever reason, we're usually working on it ourselves. Right. Now, for that rogue one that happened at 3 a.m., like, what was the turnaround time for you to go from it not working to being patched and working? So um, I ended up just purging the SQS queue relating to that specific service, then just monitored that the CPU utilization went back down, and then we uh, created a, a task in Jira to deal with it on Monday. Nice. So solve the problem, but then like really solve it later. Exactly. Which I think there's like a takeaway from that, I guess, right? Like it's so easy to like pre-optimize things, but sometimes like just getting the job done and dealing with it in a reasonable amount of time frame is good as long as it doesn't get like ignored. Yeah, and I think recognizing where you could potentially face issues in the future and continuously doing that exercise is super important. So like when I review performance insights, I can see that, okay, we have a select query that might um, on each execution might hit 3 million rows or something. And it takes on average five or six seconds to complete. That query might be completely fine right now with the scale of data we have, but then we'll add something in the backlog that says we probably need to address this by date X um, to avoid any problems. Right. I think that's an interesting point. Like it, it makes me think now, like you are dealing with quite a lot of data, but on your dev boxes, I would imagine, you know, you're not loading, uh, you know, like 500 gigs of data in your local MySQL or whatever. If a developer is developing a feature and it works really well with like, you know, let's say you add 5,000 like fake rows or something, like, do you find yourself getting into situations where a developer might think it works fine, but then it doesn't in production because the data size is so different? Certainly happens. And we, we try to use um, real data in our development environments. And since we run the scraper locally, we can just execute it for a specific piece of information that we need. Um, but sometimes if we need to replicate something staging in production, we're going to have to get a database dump from there. And it has become, we've reached a scale now where it's, it's impossible to actually have a full copy. And even if we could, importing that full copy would take so long that it wouldn't be worth it anyway. So yeah, that's a huge, uh, huge problem. And I'd rather have some really sophisticated database seeds uh, than having to deal with extracting specific pieces of information from production and staging. Right. Yeah, no, that's really funny because it's like, all right, Tuesday morning to start the import. And it's like, well, I can't work until Friday afternoon. It's bizarre. And MySQL is so slow when it comes to importing large data sets locally. It's, uh, it's a pain. Right. Now, you mentioned like sophisticated you know, seed data. Do you happen to use like a specific like faker type of library that can sort of make like, you know, fake real email addresses or fake real business names or, you know, stuff like that? I wish we did. And I think we have a story in the backlog as well to, to work on some, some proper seeds. Um, but currently, no. Okay. Yeah, it's an interesting problem because that is a very nice thing to have. But at the same time, it's like kind of a pain in the butt to keep that up and maintain it. Because if you have like 150 tables, like I don't know how many models that will translate to, maybe one-to-one, -one, it's like you're going to need to have seed data for like 150 different things. And if something changes in the migration, then the seed needs to change as well. Yeah, that's extremely painful. Um, I think some sort of hybrid solution between seeding and having a subset of production data extracted automatically would, would make the most sense. Yeah, for sure. And by the way, you know, you just mentioned production again. That reminds me, uh, what was it like for you or what is it like for you to deal with secret management? Um, so we're using um, SSM 
for for the, the critical secrets. We are planning on switching over to Secrets Manager. Yeah, that's the current state of affairs. Okay, because it's also like another interesting thing to talk about when it comes to secrets and you know developers being able to deploy. So, like, can you walk us through what happens when you know, let's say a developer wants to introduce a new feature? And we didn't get a chance to talk about payments yet, so maybe this is like a good example, even though it may not be accurate. But like, you know, let's say that you're working on integrating Stripe and Stripe has API keys and a developer wants to be able to deploy that new version of the app, but it's not going to work, you know, until they put in the real production Stripe credentials. Like, does every developer have the ability to modify those secrets? Like, how does that work? Yeah, they have that ability um, and it would live in, in SSM on AWS. Okay, that's pretty cool. So I like that when developers have the power to actually be able to do stuff because it is tricky, right? If you try to like limit their access, then it's like suddenly you can't really do automated deployments because, well, someone's going to be the roadblock for making sure that environment variable exists or, you know, that secret. Absolutely. And I think we've really tried to build our team on a base of trust. And I, I really trust the members of my team to do the right thing and not abuse anything. And I don't, I'm not sure why they would. So um, I think it's always the right approach. Make sure that permissions are open for the team and um, restricted for everyone else. Right. And there's always like code reviews just in case like someone decides to go off the deep end and go crazy and try to break the system. Yeah, exactly. And code reviews are for everyone's benefit. They're, I mean, to detect things going completely off course, and uh, but also to make sure that we maintain a good code style and readability and that the other person next to you will be able to understand the code. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, just speaking of, you know, uh, employees and stuff like that, we didn't go over this specifically, but like, are, are all of them remote workers or most of them? Um, so we're based in Brussels. Um, I'm currently in Stockholm. Um, I haven't been to the Brussels in like a year now, <laughs> but we have started to return to the office now. Everyone is hired to be on location, um, but we are sort of introducing a more formalized working from home policy now as well. But they are hired to be on location. Okay. Yeah, I only bring that one up because it's like, you know, if you're giving a developer that much trust over everything, then I was curious if you issue them all like company laptops and like how locked down is that laptop? So it's it's a laptop that is semi-locked down. There are some permissions they don't have. Um, but yeah, they're all issued a company laptop. That's correct. Okay. And by the way, you know, just talking about uh, disasters or unexpected events and stuff like that, do you want to maybe go over, you know, even with all those policies and code reviews in place, like, you know, stuff may happen. Uh, like what happens when it comes to like things like backing up all the data that you have? Because you have a lot of data, right? It's, it's a big database, but also like individual files that have been uploaded too. Absolutely. So we do, we use the built-in uh, database snapshot feature in RDS. We currently don't have an off AWS account backup for anything. Um, which I've sort of identified as the biggest risk if things go completely wrong. So we're working on implementing that by the end of the year. And the idea then would be to either have an, a full backup of everything of the S3 buckets as well in either a separate AWS account or with another cloud provider. Right. That should be fun. Like the egress costs of getting all that data out of AWS. Oh yeah. Their network, network charges are always fun to deal with <laughs> because there's such an unexpected cost. You don't really get that into the calculation when you're doing your napkin math. Right, because then AWS is like, oh, you like data, I heard. And by the <laughs> way, it's going to be like, you know, $47,000 to extract that out of here. That's a good point. I need to really consider that carefully. <laughs> but I think we, we want to make sure we're in a position to deal with, you know, a doomsday scenario. Um, yeah. We have everything in EU West 1. And what if, like, connection is cut to the to Ireland? 
how do we restore our stack in Frankfurt or another AWS location in a good way? So if you're able to cover the doomsday scenario, then I think you're pretty much covered for every other scenario as well. Yeah, for sure. But it's interesting, like, you know, the doomsday scenario is still not covered now. And here you are a couple of years later and things are still working fine. So maybe like, yeah, you don't need to like account for that stuff on day one, I bet, right? Absolutely not. I think that's for us, it's it's about maturity. Um, we we were acquired and joined Politico just over three years ago, and we're reaching a point now where we're approaching double digit team members. And I think we're maturing as a product and maturing as a team. And that's when it's time to deal with those those kind of issues. Right. And by the way, earlier you mentioned that you got woken up because some alarm got triggered, but do you do have like another external service that's outside of AWS that checks all your sites to make sure, you know, all like the health page is reporting back at 200? Yes, yeah, so we're using an external provider that provides us with 24 hour, 24 hour access to um, technical staff that also monitors our stack. And I believe they're using the service from Atlassian. I don't remember what it's called, but they have an op service that feeds in data from CloudWatch. Um, so they're watching metrics for us and then have sort of a series of steps of escalation for when they, when they actually call me. Okay. That makes sense. And before we wrap this up, by the way, we didn't really get a chance to talk about payments. Like how do your customers pay you? If you don't mind uh, answering that one. They pay by invoice. So it's very, very traditional sort of enterprise sales. Okay. So a lot of just like, yeah, manual, it's, it's not something you need to automate through like the rails app or something, right? No, that all lives in, in Salesforce with a separate team. Um, we do get access to some of the information through the Salesforce APIs that we're able to leverage to display information in the app, but um, all completely manual by the sales team. Right. Yeah. I don't know if that's better or worse. Like, what is your take on that one? Like, it's kind of nice because it's like, you don't need to deal with that. Like, you don't need to write all of your payment handling and integrations with Stripe and Paddle and PayPal or whatever. Like, I doubt PayPal would be used for one of these invoices, but what do you think about that in general? I mean, I think it's quite fun. We, back when we were a startup, we, we used Stripe. And we, you could then just sign up online and pay a monthly due. Um, whereas now it's a lot more enterprise sales. And um, the contract amounts are usually where people would be hitting credit card limits. I'm not sure it would be applicable for our use cases uh, right here um, with the contract amounts we're dealing with. But I, I think payments are quite fun. And I, I really enjoyed working with the Stripe APIs. They're fantastic. Yeah, no, Stripe's API is really good. But that would be funny though, right? It's like they go to your site, you have Stripe integration and it's like three easy payments of like $79,999. <laughs> <laughs> that would be something. Yeah, for sure. So what would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are from building this app? My best tip would be to not think too much about doing things. It's better to do things than think about doing them because you'll have measurable results. And that's really been the key for us. So we, we try to experiment with new things all the time and uh, we learn a lot from it. Awesome. So do you recall maybe like the opposite of best tips, right? Where it's like you made some mistake in the past and then you corrected it over time based on like actual feedback. Well, I, I think you, you mentioned it in the beginning and that was not geary. <laughs> <laughs> too much, too much pain. So use the, uh, use the right tool for the right situation. And uh, for us, that was using Node.js for scraping rather than Ruby. Right. And by the way, on the topic of that, like just before we go here, with the Node app, like are you totally happy with that setup? Like do you see yourself continuing to use that in the foreseeable future? Yes, I think so. We might um, review SQS uh, because of visibility into the queue. But apart from that, we're very, very happy with the setup. It's performing well for us. Um, and it's 
it's quite efficient. Nice. Very good to hear. So Carl, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Um, KLR on GitHub. I'm not super active um, on social media. It's also more of a listener presence, but uh, at Carl Roos, if you want to follow me. Cool. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running in Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.